We've been on quite an adventure, working our way through this book. There is much that we are learning, I trust, about our God, and what He has done for us. And all the way through these uh, chapters, we've been focusing on some of the things that are fundamental to our faith. Things we must know, and things we must understand, they do not change. This is the way God has so designed it, and this is based on His character. And I'm so glad for that. As we go through our section here in chapter number 9, we're going to follow through with more that He teaches us. We, we found in the very first chapter that salvation is only accomplished by the power of God. There is no other way to be saved but by His power. We found in chapter 2 that salvation cannot be bargained for. We found in chapter 3 that the depth of our sin makes it impossible for us to earn our salvation. We found in chapter 4 that it must be faith first and faith alone that uh, justifies the ungodly. We found in chapter 5 that the salvation is a gift from God. And in chapter 6, that we're united with Him, and therefore, we should not continue to sin. Theologically, that's the fact. Chapter 7, we found that we have the newness of the Spirit, so we don't have to continue to sin. That's very practical. But it's also a lesson we need to learn. Chapter number 8, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we can live godly lives. Because God dwells in us. That's our spiritual undergirding. Here in chapter number 9, a simple statement for you. God is the initiator of our salvation. God is the initiator of our salvation. Verse number 16 is the key verse that I'll keep bringing up as we go through here. Where it says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. Let me read the chapter to you. There's 33 verses here. Follow along as I start in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed separated from God for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promises are promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, 
and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. What do you say to me then? Who does he still find, why does he still find fault? What, who, for who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and his to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. For he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in this place where it is said to them, you shall not, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though, in number of the son, uh, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us of prosperity, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, but attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by work. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Heavenly Father, we have this passage in front of us that speaks of you and your incredible mercy. So often, Lord, when we go through passages like this, we have lots of questions. More times than not, we have a man-centered focus. This morning, may we have a God-centered focus. As we muse upon these words, as we seek to understand them and to incorporate them into our thinking and into our lives, show us again who you are and how blessed we are to know you. Work in our lives today through this word. We know it's powerful. We know it's active. We know it will accomplish what you set it out to do. Do your will, Lord, in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a great section here, chapter number 9. God is the initiator of our salvation. 
We have spent uh, last week, and it, it was so short, to try to cover chapter number 8, which is a chapter I'd like to just sit and soak in for a long time. Uh, very encouraging passage, very uh, soul-strengthening passage, the kind that uh, undergirds our faith. I want to back up just a little bit to it, uh, uh, just to give you a, a running head start into chapter number 9. Last week we found that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That is his work. That's what he does. He testifies to our relationship that we are children of God. He gives us that security and that confidence and that hope that are vital. They're absolutely vital for our understanding of what God is doing in our lives. I hope you don't think that God somehow started up your salvation and just let you try to figure out the rest. But this chapter we saw last week is, He is intimately involved in every aspect of our being. All the time. Even now. For the Spirit is testifying even now that we are the children of God. And this word just springs to to life in our, our understanding Consider this, if you will, just in a human way of thinking. The investment that God has made in our lives as believers. We've seen that all the way through these chapters, what God has invested. Do you think God, who has spent so much time and so much cost, He gave His Son to save us, wouldn't He also make arrangements for security and for confidence, and for hope? Wouldn't he who has begun the good work see it all the way to the end? That's what he says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul was confident of that very fact. Even knowing what kind of sinners we are, saturated in our entire being with sin and the the nature that we are born with, unworthy of any help from God at all. Unworthy of it. Yet scriptures does not hesitate to show us that though we deserved wrath and death, we have a God who loved us and poured out His grace and saved us. We've seen that. So when He has made a plan for our redemption, the, the release from bondage to sin the giving of forgiveness, the placement into his family. He is so thoroughly involved in that process that right now we are secure in his work. I want you to see this. Back in chapter 8, verse number 28. We didn't get a good chance to go over this little paragraph from 28 to the end, but now we're going to look at it because it's essential for our next chapter. This is the way it's summed up for us. He says in 8.28, For we know, and I really hope you can say it that way, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become, conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He called, He predestined, those he called, I mean, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's take the big summary here. 
of what he has just said. Verse 28, God is at work. You can't miss that, can you? He's causing things to work together, right? He does that. That means he has a purpose. I underscore that with the students I teach at Cornerstone. When God saves you, there is a purpose for it. He doesn't just save you and just, well, glad you're in the family. He saves for a purpose. He always has. You have been saved for a purpose. Verse number 28, he called us. Who then initiated the act? He did. He called us. He invited us. Without his calling, we would have never come to him. I firmly believe that. We would have never come to him unless he had called us. You can match that with John chapter 6, John chapter 10 if you like to. Verse number 29. It also adds he foreknew us. <laughs> While we could spend hours on that topic. He foreknew us. But just for a moment. Let's just appreciate this fact. There is nothing in you he doesn't know. Now, I don't know if that makes you appreciate that fact or not. There is nothing in you he doesn't know, and he still chose to call you. He has intimate knowledge of all that he has called. This relationship demands this kind of knowledge. He foreknew you. That's important to our understanding. Because in that, verse 29 says, He also predestined us. I love that word. Some people don't. I love that word. Because it tells me what His plan is. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. God has determined your destiny. Understand this. Without your aid, without your influence, God has determined us. And that word sits right there in that spiritual realm of His eternal plan for your future with Him. With Him. That's what the avenue is that He has done this. He's predestined us to conform to the image of His Son. According to the book of Ephesians, if we could spend a lot of time there too, His foreknowledge and His predestination took place before we were saved. And I like that. But it was before we were born, too. It was before the earth even existed. Now, think of his knowledge for a minute. It's powerful, isn't it? But think of his mercy and his calling. The great destiny he has for us to conform us to the image of his Son. This is why he has predestined, and I will guarantee you this, God will not fail. When it's all done... You're standing there in His presence, in the image of His Son. I love those words. I hang on those words. I need those words. Verse 30 puts it all together. I love the way it's constructed. Grammatically, it's so beautiful. And we'll talk about it in English. I could prove it in Greek too if you wanted another hour, but I won't. These whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He predestined, he calls. He calls, he justifies. He makes us in a right relationship 
because of Jesus Christ, to stand before him, forgiven of our sins, placed in a right standing. He justifies us. But notice what that last word was. Glorified as well. See, he doesn't do the first three and leave off the last one. He sets that in that same context. Matter of fact, this is where they say in Ephesians chapter 2, that we've already been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Already seated, folks. God is so confident about our future. So confident about our future, he already sees us there with him. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There will be no empty homes in heaven. If he's going to prepare your place, you will be there. There will be no empty seats around his banquet table. The whole bundle of salvation is already complete in God's mind and plan. It's complete before you even existed. He called, he predestined, he justified, he glorified. Now I'll show you the, the, just the English side of this. They're all past tense words. They're all past tense words. How powerful is this, folks? As far as I know, only God could look into the future and speak in the past tense. That's the way He does things. That's where you are in Christ Jesus. That's how sure of it He is, that His plan will be fulfilled. So it's only logical that we add these verses. 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And then it says in verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will we not also with Him freely give us all things? We walk around like paupers. We walk around like we're orphans. When we have a Heavenly Father who will never get rid of us. Who loves us. And who has put us into His family. Verse 33, So then who can bring a charge against God's elect. It is Christ Jesus who died for our justification. There is no more payment necessary. It's done. It's done. And if that's not enough for you yet, verse 35, who or what will ever separate you from the love of God? He gives us a list of possibilities. How about circumstances? No. How about hardships? No. How about trials? No. Will things greater than us separate us from God's love? No. Death? No. Under here, you hear those words? No. Death does not separate us from the love of God. Death is not stronger than our God. He's proven that. Remember Resurrection Day? Angels? No. Satan's an angel. Is he greater than God's love? No. Can he separate you from God's love? No. He cannot. He's an angel. Powers. There's no distance. There's not the past. There's not the present. There's not the future. You know, in my foolishness years ago, I used to think, okay, I could say all that, Lord, but 
there is one thing that can separate me from you and your love, and that's me. And then he said, in verse 39, nor any other created thing. And that deflated my bubble. I no longer could do it. Because nothing can separate me. See, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who gets the credit for such things? Was this because of things I have merited before him? Did God look down and see how wonderful we are? Say, I'm going to save that one. Did God see how attractive we are? We impress ourselves when we get up, right? Wow, how great. Was God impressed with our wisdom? Did God say, these are great people, I must save them? Let's state it this way. It is purely God's mercy. Uninfluenced, unmanipulated, that he has put us into a relationship with himself. It is purely his mercy. That is the next three chapters of this book. God's mercy. Some people do this, and I've seen it done many times before. It brought Paul's great presentation of salvation. They're walking their way through uh, chapter 1, 2, 3, up to verse, or chapter 8. And then they reach chapter 11, and they, or 9, 10, and 11, and they say, I don't even know what that's in here for. So they toss it to the side. They go from 8 to 12. They say, I, I don't even, why does he have to talk about Israel? Let's just go from 8 to 12 and just finish the story. You haven't finished the story without 8, 9 through 12. You have to have all of the chapters to understand the full scope of what God is doing here. We have to see the value of his mercy. So what does he do? He brings in a dialogue about Israel. And this is the lesson we must see. I find great value in chapter 9, 10, and 11. I think you will too. It's an easy way to sum all this up. You ready? That God loves Israel and does not intend to give up on her. He will keep his promises. He will accomplish his plans for that nation. I am a firm believer that everything God has promised to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. I'm a firm believer in that. There are no substitutes for Israel. There are no replacements for Israel. There are no alterations of what God intends to do for them. And we, of all people, are on the verge of seeing God fulfill His plan. I believe that's the day we're living in. It excites me. Then we're going to look back and say, Aha! I knew it! God had said it and I believed it. Here it is, fulfilled in our midst. I can't wait for that day. So, what are these chapters going to point out to us? What God does with Israel will serve as an example to us. What God does, what God has done, what God will do in a corresponding fashion. Understand corresponding. As we see the reality of what he's doing there, we're going to understand its application of what he's doing in our lives. He has made us promises too, hasn't he? How can we be sure he's going to fulfill them? 
Well, he's that kind of a God who does fulfill what he says. Let me ask you these things, because you could do it simply by comparison. Did God call Israel to be his own? Absolutely. Did God call us to be his own? Good. We're doing well. Did God select Israel because of how great they were? No. Here's the verses I'll read to you from Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all the people. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He eliminated every single element of self-merit in that statement. Did God select us because we were so great? No. You see, there's a parallel running, right? Let me ask you this. Did Israel ever sin against God? <laughs> that was an easy one to answer. How about this one? Do we ever sin against God? Did God abandon his work with Israel? Did he ever give up entirely on them? This is what he said in Samuel, 1 Samuel 12:22. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Now the parallel is real simple. God has not given up on them, and he will fulfill what he's promised to them. So we know that God is consistent in his character. He won't abandon us either. Even though we still wrestle with sin, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, God is not through with us. And he will fulfill his work. So we mark this verse. Chapter 9, verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. We've got to mark this and understand what it says. When it says, it does not depend on man. It is God's mercy. It is God's compassion. We saw that in the previous verse, where he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it, my mercy, my compassion, does not depend on man. It never depends upon man. <laughs> it never depends upon the will of man or the ability of man. It always depends upon God. That's his mercy. So here's our lessons. You ready? We'll go through this somewhat quickly. I hope we can follow along well. Our lessons from Israel. Chapter 9, start in the first couple of verses. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me and the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed. When was the last time you prayed that way to God concerning the unsaved? Lord, throw me out if you're just saved then. <laughs> I know how Paul's writing right here. You have a heart desire that way? 
He says, I wish I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, temple services, the promises. We, they are the fathers, they have Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. Point number one is simple. Salvation is only accomplished by faith. Paul had a great deal of love for his brothers. That's Israel. He had a saved person view in light of all the blessings of salvation. He was longing for the salvation of his family. Israel had all the advantages in the world, we would say, but they were still not saved by them. They had the adoption of sons. They had a right a relationship right with God. They had the glory, God's bestowment of honor upon them. They had the covenants with Abraham and David. They had the giving of the law, which is God's revealed truth. They had the temple services, a place to worship God. They had the promises of the land and of the blessings. They had the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on we go. They even had the Messiah. All of these belong to them. But according to verse 31, if you turn the page, if you have to, but 31, 32, 33, but Israel pursued a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. He speaks of that in the next verse. They pursued a law of righteousness. They did not arrive at it. They did not pursue it by faith. They tried to achieve it by works because they did not believe in Him. So then the whole of salvation was centered on one truth. Only those who believed in Him were saved regardless of their advantages in the realms of righteousness. That's why when we say this, we state it so carefully. It is not church attendance that will save you. It is not attending Sunday school, because that's an extra bonus, right? It is not membership in the church. It is not baptism. It is not communion. It's not what you teach. It's not what you preach. It's not living out the golden rule. It's not following the Ten Commandments. None of these, or even compiling them all together in one heap, will save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ. See, God does not show partiality even to those whom he called the Jews, the Israelites back in their day, they failed because they did not pursue it by faith. So the question is naturally raised in point number two. If salvation is only accomplished by faith, then has the word of God failed? Are, we not, are they not all Israel who are descendants from Israel? Are they not all children who because they are Abraham's descendants? Through Isaac, your descendants will be named, he says. That is, if not the children of the flesh are who are the children of God, it's the children of promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At that time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And you're saying, where is this going? I have no idea what he's doing with this paragraph. Let me explain it to you. Salvation is a spiritual matter. It's not a physical one. You're not saved because of your parentage. Your mom and dad were saved, so you're saved. Israel had a mistaken understanding. 
They were related to God because they are physical descendants of Abraham. See him boast of that all the way through the time of Christ? We are descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Jesus looked at him and said, No, the devil is your father. Ouch. See, Paul even says that. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. All you have to do is look at the family tree. And that's what he's doing in this little passage. Abraham had more descendants than just Isaac. Is that true? You say, huh, how'd that work? Hagar. Who was born? Ishmael. Ishmael had 12 sons, according to Genesis chapter 25, and at least one daughter because she married Esau. Abraham had six other sons. Did you know that? His other wife was Keturah. Abraham went and took another wife. Genesis 25.1 says her name was Keturah. If you go into Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, 33, you'll find the list of those names. The sons of Abraham through Keturah. Zimram, his name meant celebrated. Jokchan, he was a snare by definition. Midan, he brought contention according to his name. Midian, you ever hear of the Midianites? Descendant of Abraham. Through Keturah. Midian, uh, Midian means strife. Ishbak means leaving. And Shua means a pit. I don't know why you name your son a pit. But could you imagine what this family reunion looked like? You've got Isaac here and Ishmael there, who is, you know what Ishmael is. And then you've got celebrated, snare, contention, strife, leaving, and a pit. All sitting at the table. You say, okay, what's that mean? That means not all of them are the children of promise. But they all could claim descendants of Abraham. And then Isaac went and had two sons too, didn't he? Jacob and Esau, and that's also in our passage. Esau brought about the kingdom of Edom. So he says in verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. It was measured by faith because of this. God showed that it took faith to belong to that relationship with Him. There's a link between faith and the concept children of promise. Two examples. One named Sarah, one named Rebecca. What's true of both of them? They were unable to conceive children. Both of them. They were both barren. Sarah was 90 years old. Did she have a child? Yes. Rebecca, she was barren too because Isaac prayed on her behalf before God because she was barren. And the Lord answered and Rebecca's wife conceived. Now both of those are examples to us simply in this. The children were a miracle that God brought about. They were a miracle. He controlled their conception. So that there would be no mistake in understanding that God, who promised a special family to Abraham, caused them to depend upon him for its fulfillment. They had to depend on him for its fulfillment. That's called faith, right? These children of promise didn't happen naturally. God directed it. God empowered it. 
both Abraham and Isaac had to trust God for it. We call that faith. So faith was essential in the understanding of all these things. That's what made you a child of promise, not a child by flesh. So as we stated already in the first five verses, Israel had all the advantages, right? They had all the advantages. They were not saved because they did not believe. Did God's word fail? The answer is no. Look at how this is taught. Abraham had many descendants, but a particular group of children God chose for himself, they were the product of a miracle on God's part. God was free within this whole large group of children to select whomever he desired. So God chose and called Jacob, verse 11 says. Before he was born, before he had done good or bad, before he had done any works, it was his own purpose in choosing and calling him. God chose Jacob. God does not choose and call based on parentage. It's not based on moral character. It's not based on efforts. It's not based on works. Choosing and calling is the department of God's sovereignty. He is not manipulated. He is not influenced. He was free to choose to love, and he was free to choose to hate. Look verse 13, and you'll see it. Salvation is always a spiritual matter. It is never a physical matter. Choice and calling are God's privilege. So I've given you two points so far, and they're simple. Salvation is only accomplished by faith, and salvation is a spiritual matter. Choice and calling are God's privileges. And third one, real simple. Salvation is initiated by God. It's not given by response. What shall we say then, he says in verse 14? Is there injustice with God? May it never be. He speaks of Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In verse 17, he speaks about Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. Then he says in verse 18 again, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. Some would say, is that fair? Is that fair? Why does he choose and call some and not others? Why did he love Jacob before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad, before he had done any work at all? Why does he hate Esau before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad, before he did any work at all? Why did God do that? Well, the answer is in this simple picture. Moses and Pharaoh. Moses and Pharaoh. There's probably no two more significant individuals in Israel's history than those two. One was the good guy and one was the bad guy, right? Think this through. Moses, chapter 32, 33. He's leading a group of Exodus, by the way. He's leading a group of Israelites into the promised land. They're getting the, in the wilderness. They're getting the, the, the commandments from God and all these things. Down below in the camp, what are they doing? They're building a golden calf. Remember the story? They build the golden calf. Terrible, terrible consequences. God said simply to Moses, Step back. I'm going to wipe them out and start with you. What would you have done then? Okay, God. Moses prayed. He prayed for a sinful group of people. He prayed so intensely. 
Lord, wipe me out if you must. He prayed for them. God says, okay, take the Levites, go out into the camp and kill those who are sinning. 3,000 people died that day. It was an incredible scene. The next day, God seemed to be angry still. So Moses went and prayed before him and said, God, either forgive their sins or blot my name out of your book. Sounds like Paul. And God says, that's not your department, Moses. I know that's a paraphrase, but that's what he said. It's not your department. Mercy is my department, not yours. You can't manipulate my mercy. He says, I'm not going to lead you anymore. I'm going to let an angel lead you. Moses prays and begs the Lord that uh, he would lead them because he says, your own reputation is tied to this. Now, in all that story, and if we had time to really work it through, Israel is not portrayed in a good light, is it? They were excessively evil. Time after time after time after time, the Lord showed compassion on them. It was not because they earned it. The compassion came from the Lord. It was not a response. It wasn't dependent on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who gives it. Now, go to Pharaoh. Let me ask you this. Was Israel idolatrous at times? Yes. Was Pharaoh idolatrous? Yes. Was Israel sinful? Yes. Was Pharaoh sinful? Yes. Did God speak to Israel? Yes. Did God speak to Pharaoh? Yes! Did God demonstrate through Israel His power? Yes. And we just saw in verse 17 that God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate His power through that man too. So that my name might be proclaimed to the whole earth. All the way through, I've been showing you this, is God's initiation of it. God raised up a Pharaoh. God's initiation, he demonstrated his power through Pharaoh. At God's initiation, he proclaimed his own name through Pharaoh. We're still talking about it all these years later. What's the underscore of all this? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, God says. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's not dependent upon the man. So, Salvation is initiated by God. It's not given as a response. You say, well, okay, I'm trying to grasp this, but I have one more question. Why? You may still be asking that question. Why? Why does he choose? What, what's, what is it then that causes that? Here's point number four, and it's real simple. Salvation is not deserved by any of us. It's not deserved by any of us. For all those who would stand there and argue and say it isn't fair, did Pharaoh have a choice? Maybe he wanted to be chosen by God. Did Esau have a choice? Maybe he wanted to be chosen by God. Paul says in verse 19, Why does he still find fault? You who resist his will. On the contrary, O man, who answers back to God. The things molded will not say to the molder, Why have you made me like this, will it? Or does the potter have the right over the clay? To make from the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for common use. Put it down this way. God is a potter. The clay has no say in the way it is formed. Considering that man is sinful, 
It is not a question that he saves some, and he does not choose to save others. But the question is really, why does he save us at all? Why does he even save us at all? Nobody deserves to be saved. It's merely God's merciful will that he does so. That's God's mercy. All of us deserve to go to hell. That's reality. God has promised that the soul that sins, it shall die. God has declared his will concerning the sinner. God is patient with vessels that are marked for destruction. And yet by his mercy, he saved some of us. Don't start patting yourself on the back. (laughs) Woo, boy, did I do well to get in. Oh no, it's his mercy. It's his choice, saved by his mercy. All the lost will go to hell. Only those chosen beforehand go to heaven. Still emphasizing, it does not depend upon the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And unless the Lord of hosts had looked down upon us, we too would have been a Sodom or a Gomorrah. The Lord, unless the Lord reaches in and rescues some, all would have had that fate. Don't be misled to believe that somehow we have merited God's favor. Mercy is too great a thing to be bargained for. God cannot be influenced by man. God cannot be manipulated by man. He saves purely mercifully. And that's how he saved us. God is the initiator of our salvation. I don't know how that challenges your heart today. As a believer in Christ, I'm thrilled when I read these words. It reminds me again that my God does love me. And I need to hear that. And I need to know that. Or maybe this morning you don't have a relationship with God. You've never received Christ as Savior. You say, but how do I do that? He said how to do that. Hear what he has done. He's called to you. And all those who respond to his call, who believe in him, shall be saved. He's made that invitation. He's called you to believe it. Are you going to receive it? Today, by faith, accept Jesus Christ as Savior. For we see there's no other way to heaven but through him. That's a calling that he's made. An invitation he's made. Respond to it. Then you stand on this side of it and look back and say, Wow, what great mercy. What great mercy. That he should call me. Heavenly Father, you know every single person in this room. How unworthy we are of your love. Your mercy for this great work that we've studied here today. We've hardly even touched the surface of this one, Lord. But what we have seen today has thoroughly impressed us with the greatness of our God and the mercy that he has granted to us. May we not, may we not take another moment's breath without appreciation for that mercy. May we live in light of those who have been saved by grace and who walk in this compassion and who are grateful people, I hope we are, for what you have done. Indeed, how great is our God. 
We give you the praise today. May it, may these words change us. Saturate our understanding and help us to live in light of who you are. May this day be different now. And maybe tomorrow as well, as we come to appreciate what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.